morning again. And uh, in today's sermon, we're going to be thinking about how to deal with sin in the church uh, from 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. Let's pray for God's help to understand and to live out his word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the forgiveness and transformation that you bring through Christ and the cross. We pray now that through the word of your gospel, you would be helping us uh, to turn away from sin in our lives and live redeemed lives that glorify you. And we pray that you would help me to bring this word faithfully by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in many Western countries, tolerance has become one of the supreme uh, virtues of society. Society embraces and promotes all kinds of sins, abortion, immorality, materialism, and so on. But there is one sin in the West that must be rejected, and that is intolerance. Not accepting someone for who they are, telling them that they're wrong and that they need to change. And in particular, tolerance is expected with regard to someone's sexuality. Uh, Increasingly, people have begun to uh, define themselves by their sexuality. They'll say, I was born this way. This is who I am. I have to be true to myself. To deny someone's self-determined identity, then, is the ultimate offence. Now, this sexual revolution in our world has been progressing in at a frightening pace over the past few decades. It began many decades ago with normalising sex outside of marriage. Then adultery and divorce became increasingly acceptable. Uh, marriage became about personal preference rather than commitment. You know, I'll marry you as long as I love you, rather than as long as we both shall live. Uh, then emerged the internet and pornography, normalising increasingly extreme sexual behaviours, Netflix, movies like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and all that. And, and then it progressed to acceptance of homosexuality, uh, legalisation of same-sex marriage. And now the latest issue we find ourselves is transgenderism. Uh, with the first transgender athlete just welcome to compete at the Olympic Games. And and who knows how far this revolution has yet to run. You know, will polygamy become accepted? Will the legal age of marriage be changed? And so on. Of course, those are not simply issues for the West. Increasingly, issues from the West come here to Malaysia as well. But our passage this afternoon speaks powerfully against that kind of Uh, tolerance culture. We are not simply to tolerate any sexual behaviour. We must deal with the sin in our lives. We must glorify God with our bodies. Well, let's remind ourselves of the context. And we saw in chapter 1 of this letter to, to the Corinthian church that they were a gifted church. They were enriched with the grace of God. But we also saw, despite that, they were actually a church that had lots of problems. And Paul had got a report back from Chloe's people. Uh, In chapters 1 to 6, he's been dealing with some of the issues that they raised with Paul. Uh, So far, chapters 1 to 4, he's been dealing with the first of their problems, which was that the church was full of divisions. They were all lining up under their favourite leader, based on, uh, on their eloquence and the power of their speech. The church was arrogant. It had embraced worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom of the cross. But now in chapters 5 to 6, Paul turns to some much more serious scandals that had broken out in the church, including incest, lawsuits in the congregation, 
and prostitution. Paul intends to shame this church that claims to be so spiritual and yet so devoid of holiness. And so point one this morning, immorality in the church. Immorality in the church. Paul mentions the scandal in verse 1. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Paul is shocked that there's a man in the congregation who's sleeping with his stepmother. Now, of course, such incest like that was forbidden by God. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 20 said, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he hasn't covered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. But even in the pagan world, this was outrageous behavior. Now, Corinth in the first century, was a very free society. Almost any sex was permitted and celebrated in that city, so much so that to the Jews, Corinth was the epitome of moral depravity. But even in pagan Corinth, this labyrinth of sexual immorality, this sin, a man with his stepmother, was so utterly scandalous, even they couldn't accept it. But to make matters worse, not only had one of their church members committed this sin, but the church itself was actually proud of it. Look at verse 2. It says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The Corinthians are proud. Perhaps they boast that they're such a, a tolerant and accepting church. They'll welcome anyone. Perhaps they, they boast in God's grace that, that, that God can forgive anything. Perhaps they're boasting in their freedom. Whatever their reason, their boasting shows just how far this church has gone astray. Because a church that really was spiritual would mourn over such moral depravity. Now notice here Paul's focus is not so much on the man that has sinned in particular, but on the church that has allowed it to happen. Paul demands swift and radical action, verse 2. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Even though Paul is not there with them in person, he's in no doubt what they should do. Verse 3 says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is a public sin. It's a serious sin. And so Paul demands a public response, a serious response. He wants this person expelled from the congregation. Verse 4, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what does it mean here to hand this person over to Satan? doesn't sound so nice, does it? Well, basically what it means is that they are to expel him from amongst their fellowship. They are to thrust him back into the world, the domain where, where Satan rules. And so they are to treat him as if he's a non-Christian. But the purpose is, is, is not, not cruel. It's not, they're not handing him over to Satan so that he will face everlasting damnation. The purpose is to show this person the severity of his sin. That... If he's living like that, he's, he's not one of them. He's not really a Christian. 
But the goal of this extreme behavior to, to, to expel him from their fellowship is restoration. That this radical action may actually move him to repentance and thus ultimately lead to him being saved on the final day, the day of the Lord. So his sinful fleshly desires will be destroyed. He'll choose again to live under the spirit of, uh, in, the, in the life of the Spirit under the rule of King Jesus. And he'll be saved in the end. Well, in verse 6 to 8, Paul gives the reason for this drastic response. That is that sin spreads. Sin spreads. Paul once again reprimands them for their boasting in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They're proud of the situation. They're proud of their knowledge. They're proud of their spirituality. But Paul shows them how little they really know. He goes on. Do you not know? that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, when you're baking bread, you add yeast, it spreads throughout the loaf, and it makes the whole loaf rise. The point is, a little bit of something affects everything. The existence of this scandal is no minor isolated event. Left alone, it will corrupt the entire church congregation. They need to take radical steps to remove this cancer from them before it spreads throughout the whole body. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. Unleavened, just like unleavened bread you know, has no yeast, so they are to be a church that has no sin. They are to get rid of the sin that is among them. To make this point, Paul takes them back again to the Gospel. Verse 7, he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. During the Exodus, uh, the Passover lamb died instead of the firstborn son in the final plague. So the people had to, to paint the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel so that the lamb would die instead of them. Now, of course, this was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told here that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is the one who died for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve in our place so that we don't have to die, so that we can be forgiven. But in the Old Testament, the Passover had another festival also attached to it. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's what he mentions in verse 8 here. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul is saying is, just as in the Old Testament, that the Passover celebration was accompanied by eating unleavened bread. So the, the salvation that Jesus brings through the cross must come together as one package with a whole, living a holy life. If Christ died as our Passover lamb, then we should respond by celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, not by eating uh, you know, flat bread as in the Old Testament, but by living holy lives, getting rid of the leaven of sin, getting rid of malice and evil, living lives of sincerity in, and truth. In other words... Once we come to trust in the death of Jesus, there ought to be a sharp contrast between our old way of life and our new life in Christ. Once we put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross, 
we need to get rid of the sin in our life and live a transformed life for Jesus. And so what that means is that the church must be on guard to guard their holiness by, by purging evil from their midst. They need to, to get rid of this cancer of sin that is in so in danger of growing among them. Uh, verses 9 to 13, Paul wants to clarify something that he wrote in a previous letter to them, which uh, we don't have in the Bible. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or, or, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul had said not to associate with sexual uh, sexually immoral people, but he didn't mean non-Christians. You know, if Christians uh, cut themselves uh, off the world like that and live in monasteries, they'll, they'll never be able to reach the world with the gospel. So he's not talking about withdrawing from the non-Christian world. He's talking here about how we are to relate to unrepentant Christians. Verse 11, he says, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. See, the person who calls themselves a Christian and yet lives a life otherwise is to be separated from the community of God's people. Not accepted. No, the sin is not to be ignored. It's not to be swept under the carpet as if nothing happened. It's to be addressed. It's to be disciplined. And Paul uses very strong language here in verse 13. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, that, that command to purge the evil person is repeated many times in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And often in that context, it actually means capital punishment. That's not what he means here. Uh, he doesn't mean that purge out evil by killing people who sin in the congregation. That's not what he means. The evil person is purged by being cast out from fellowship. Fellowship is cut off so that you won't even eat with the person. You won't welcome to them into your home. See, God's people cannot allow unrepentant sin in their midst. It must be purged, or it will spread like cancer. Because if the church sees someone living in unrepentant sin, and it refuses to take any action, refuses to discipline, then it just opens the door for the rest of the church to do the same, because it tells the church, well, sin doesn't really matter. It has no consequences. Now, very sadly, though, we've seen exactly such a disregard for sexual sin in some parts of the Anglican Church worldwide. There are more and more dioceses that are allowing practicing homosexuals to lead churches, to become bishops, more and more dioceses that are blessing same-sex marriages in churches in direct contradiction to the Word of God. And in many cases, such dioceses are proud. They, they, they label themselves as as progressive. The dioceses belonging to the Gafcon movement of the Anglican Church have rightly broken fellowship with such deviant churches, refusing to share 
the Lord's Supper together with them, refusing to attend the Lambeth Con Bishop's Conference, among other measures like this. But of course, this kind of uh, tolerance of sexual sin is not just uh, at a diocesan level, and it's not just out there. If someone, it's on a personal level as well. And the church must protect its holiness and protect its witness before it spreads. By disciplining the person, by cutting fellowship, it may be painful, may be difficult, but the church's holiness and witness are at stake. Well, in chapters 6, verses 1 to 8, Paul turns to the central issue related to this immorality. It's not just the Corinthians' pride, but their failure to exercise proper judgment. Uh, the immediate topic is the topic of lawsuits, and uh, the sudden change of topic might surprise us at first, but it's not accidental and it's not unrelated. We'll see in, just down in verse 9 to 20, Paul immediately returns to the issue of sexual immorality in the church. But frequently Paul uses this sandwich structure in the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, with the bread on the outside, same topic, uh, and then another topic that seems slightly different in the middle as the meat. It's something that's related and key. So in chapters 1 to 4 we had divisions, chapter 1, the nature of true wisdom in chapters chapter 2, and then back to divisions in 3 and 4. Chapters 5 and 6, sexual immorality. Lawsuits, sexual immorality. In chapter 7, we'll have marriage, an encouragement to remain how we're called, and then back to marriage. Chapters 8 to 10, food sacrifice to idols. Paul surrendering his rights, food sacrifice to idols. Chapters 12 to 14, spiritual gifts, the nature of love, spiritual gifts. And each time, the thing that's in the middle there, the meat and the sandwich, it's the thing that gets, helps us to get at the central issue related to that particular problem in the church. See, the key issue behind their divisions was their adoption of worldly wisdom. The key issue with them eating food sacrificed to idols was their insistence on their own rights. The key issue with their spiritual gifts was their lack of love. And so here, the key issue behind the existence of sexual immorality in the church was their refusal to exercise proper judgment and discipline in the church. Now, Paul already alludes to that in chapter 5, verse 12. It says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The church has a responsibility to be judging, to be sorting out sin internally in its midst. And the Corinthian church failed monumentally to do that. Now, I, I think generally Christians tend to have, often take issue with this topic of judgment. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you, may, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. And so based on those verses, we say that there's no place for ever judging another Christian. But Jesus is not saying that there's no place for evaluating the life of another Christian. He's not saying there's no place for church discipline or loving rebuke and correction. He's warning in those verses against judgmentalism and hypocrisy, 
forgetting that you yourself are a sinner and looking down proudly on others. But if we are to deal with sin in the church, then Christians can, and they must, judge sin. And in verses 1 to 4 of this passage, Paul tells us an incredible truth, one that the Corinthians should have known, that we should know, that in the age to come, when Jesus returns, Christians are going to be involved in the judgment of the world, even the judgment of angels. Have a look at verse 2. It says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He's saying Christians should be able to deal with the sin in their midst. They should be able to call one another to account, to call them each other to repentance, to receive one another in forgiveness. But the Corinthian church was just not able to do that. And that was obvious. Not just because they were proudly ignoring this case of gross sexual immorality, but at the same time, they were actually taking one another to court in civil lawsuits. Verse 1 says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Our conflict is a sad reality in churches. Many of us have experienced that in this church. That Christians who are meant to be united in the same family all too often are not united. But it is especially sad when you see Christians threatening lawsuits, threatening to charge another congregation member with defamation or litigation if a public apology or other terms are not met. I think such legal threats can show major deficiencies uh, in a person's character. But they can also portray major failings in the wider church. Church that's unable to help those involved to sort out the mess. At verse 4, he continues, if you, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, we must be careful here. These verses must not be taken to mean that Christians uh, should never be involved in the legal system, or they should never bring matters to the police. If a crime occurs, like child sexual abuse, it would be absolutely wrong for the church to sort it out internally and not report the case to the police. When crimes are committed, they should be reported they should go through the courts. What Paul is talking about here is, is about conflicts or disputes between other Christians. He's saying that Christians should be able to resolve their conflicts, their disputes, internally without having to go to a judge to sort it out. And Paul continues in verse 7, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
The Christians are to sacrificially love one another, not to wrong them. Going to court just makes it worse, doesn't it? When Christians go to court, no one wins. The, the reputation of the, of the whole church is damaged. Rather being a witness to the world, the lawsuits or even threats of lawsuits, they just drag Christ's name through the mud. Paul's point is that we must learn to deal with sin in our midst. Learn to judge unrepentant sinners. Learn to resolve conflicts. We must sort out sin, because if we fail to do so, he drags God's name through the mud. Well, Paul closes this section with three important convictions about sin. Three important convictions. Firstly, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice this is not only a list of sexual sins. Uh, there's idolatry here, greed, theft, drunkenness. It mentions revilers, those who destroy someone else's reputation with untrue words. It mentions swindlers, those who steal through deception. They're all on the list here too. It's clearly not meant to be an exhaustive list either. But Paul puts it in the strongest terms. Do not be deceived. If you engage in any of these activities and you refuse to repent, you're not trying to change, you don't want to change, then don't be deceived. Whatever you say with your lips, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You might call yourself a Christian, you might go to the church, you might have been baptized, you might be in leadership, but don't be fooled. If that is your lifestyle, you're not a Christian. And if Jesus returned today, you wouldn't be in his kingdom. You'd be facing his judgment. Well, let's be clear. Paul is not talking here about someone who is simply struggling with sin. Uh, we all sin in various ways every day. We all struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. I think the struggle is actually a good sign. There's a, there's a difference between someone who's struggling with sin and someone who is unrepentant of their sin, who doesn't care about their sin. The person struggling with sin wants to change. When they fail, they repent. When they fail again, they repent again. The unrepentant sinner doesn't care. They do it anyway. Brothers and sisters, is there any unrepentant sin in your life? Is there an area of your life where you are not submitting to the Lordship of Jesus? Do not be deceived about it. It's a serious matter. You need to repent if you want to enter the kingdom. Are you engaged in sexual sin? 
sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend you're not married to, having an affair, are you addicted to pornography, are you engaged in greed, drunkenness, do you steal, do you steal from the church offertory, do you download illegal movies and software, whatever it is, you need to stop that behaviour, you need to repent and turn to Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. Because if you refuse to repent, do not be deceived. You're not a Christian. You're living for yourself. And the unrighteous will not inherit the Kingdom of God. Well, secondly, understand that we can be forgiven of any sin. There are sins that will exclude us from the kingdom of God if we refuse to repent of them. But for those who will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's been a radical change. Look at verse 11. It's beautiful. Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of us have committed some of the sins I just listed. But for those who turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. But we can be washed, all the guilt taken away, washed clean, dealt with at the cross. We can be sanctified, that means we're made holy, spotless, blameless, set apart for his holy use. We can be justified, that means declared righteous before God, totally accepted, fully forgiven. If you have skeletons in the closet, perhaps some of us do, know that if you've turned to Jesus, it's fully forgiven. Now, I'm not certainly not trying to wag the finger in this sermon. Now, we're all failures. I have my own personal failures. Perhaps we haven't all done the same things. But every one of us has said, thought, done things that we're deeply ashamed of. Perhaps as we look back on our past sins, we do wonder, would God actually forgive us? I certainly sometimes wonder that. But if you're worried that God couldn't forgive that he couldn't accept you because of what you've done. Know that you can be accepted. You can be forgiven. If you turn to Jesus Christ, you will be washed, sanctified, justified. You'll be forgiven. You'll be cleansed. You'll be holy, blameless, righteous in God's sight. That is the glorious good news of the gospel. That is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And praise God, that is what seems to have happened in the case of the Corinthian church. We learn in 2 Corinthians that the Corinthians did take action, that the sinner did repent, and he was restored. And Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 to 8. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Isn't that beautiful? In this chapter, he says, take serious steps. Purge the evil person from among you. But when he repents, he begs the church to take them back. Reaffirm their love. That is the beauty of the gospel. Well, let's uh, conclude. We've seen today that it's crucial that we take sin seriously. The church must be willing to judge sin and sort out disputes. And they must do that because unrepentant sin leads to the judgment of God. And if it's not dealt with, it will spread like cancer in the church. Decisive action is required. Loving correction, seeking full restoration. And as we do, there is God's wonderful offer of forgiveness that is held out to any who turn to the Lord Jesus. We can be washed, justified, sanctified, accepted by God, restored in loving fellowship with him and with one another. And so, brothers and sisters, let's not let sin fester in the church, either personally or corporately, in response to the gospel. Let's deal with sin in love and grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the reminder from your word that we need to take sin seriously in ourselves and in others. Lord, where we see sin in our own life, especially sexual sin, we pray that you would help us to repent of it, help us to change where we're in conflicts or disputes. Help us to reconcile. Because we do want to be your people. We do want to enter your kingdom. And we want to thank you for the wonderful forgiveness and cleansing available to us as we turn to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. Thank you that no matter what we've done, we can be your holy forgiven people and have the real hope of inheriting eternal life in your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.